Hello everybody and welcome to Sound of Play 212. Every Wednesday in Sound of Play we bring you some of our and your favourite pieces from the many video game soundtracks we've enjoyed over the decades. And I'm very excited to say that joining me, Leon Cox, in Sound of Play 212, after five years of doing this show, he's never joined us before, but here he is. It's only Austin Wintery. Welcome to Sound of Play. It's my pleasure. You make it sound like you've been hounding me and I keep rejecting well, you. No, that I was going to say, it might be because we've never asked. <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, I, I, it is with all too much pleasure that I am here. So I, I, I think that I think we've identified the issue. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so shyness uh, on my part. Uh, I've I've reached out to a few of the uh, the bigger name composers. Some some we've had thrust in our direction, as it is in, on this occasion, which is always lovely. Um, and a few a few of the big names have politely turned us down, and some of them have never responded. But Austin, I've never I've never bothered you before. Uh, <laughs> but here we are, Grammy nominated, two time BAFTA winning composer. If you don't know, listener for Flow, Monaco, What's Yours Is Mine, Journey, Absolute. The Banner Saga Trilogy, Assassin's Creed Syndicate, Absolver, and the reason we're here, especially this week, the newly released game Erica. Now, we've already heard some enticingly mysterious, rich and haunting music from that game, the track Know Thyself. So this was kind of sprung on us uh, this week. I've known about it for a few weeks, but this game emerged and was popped up and, and I saw on your Twitter earlier, you said, oh, thank goodness, I've been... Basically, you've been sitting on this for four years? Something like that. I haven't gone back and actually sort of done the email forensic analysis, but something, mm. something three or four years ago, I was at the Game Developers Conference in San Francisco, and a friend of mine very mysteriously sends me this message saying, I have a friend at the bar of the W Hotel who you would be thrilled to to chat with. He's cooking something very interesting. Mm -hmm. um, and that was basically all I knew. Uh, so I went on the hunt for some mysterious guy named Jack and found him very dutifully waiting at the bar of the W Hotel with his business partner and, and technical director named Pavle. And he basically put an iPad in my lap and said, um, you know, put on some headphones and check this out and let's talk in 15 minutes. And, and he had made just in this bootstrap sort of grassroots way, a, a little demo mm. or kind of prototype of a game that um, it had a different name back then, but it, it would it would become eventually Erica. Mm -hmm. And it was one of those where I just I, I, you know, I click on the iPad and this footage opens up of a woman standing on a street corner. And it's beautifully shot footage. So it instantly struck me as, you know, this is they're working with filmmakers that know what they're doing because um uh you know i've scored a lot of film and i've and yeah. i see a lot of movies and i have a mm -hmm. pretty good sense of uh when the production values are sort of legitimate and when they're a little bit lackluster sure uh, shall we say and um and this was one where um i just was kind of instantly struck at the at the know-how uh but i had no sense of the gameness of it in fact i wasn't even really sure what it was what it was he was showing me and so i um I start, you know, playing around with the footage and I was astonished at how adaptive it was. You know, it was right. very um it was very responsive and his whole idea was I want you to feel like you're touching the world, you're interacting with the footage and the characters and you're kind of riding shotgun in their in their mind. And uh in that 5 or 10 minute little custom demo that he made or prototype, it was 
it was so striking that I basically just said, where do I sign? How can I be part of this? And he had no publisher deal yet. He was still kind right. of playing the field. And then eventually uh, he formed a partnership with Sony. And uh, yep. so we kind of got everything official. And then it was this long pre-production process of them obviously writing the the um, script and getting all their ducks in a row, casting and building up their, their team. And I was starting the early process of sketching and even even brainstorming with their writers in terms of how we can figure the music in. And and um, and then, you know, off off it went from there. Many more potential stories. But I guess that's kind of the foundation of it. That's interesting. I, I wondered if because obviously not all your work has come out via Sony before, but you've had some relationship with developers who have been published by Sony or have been incorporated with sony so i wondered if it came that way around but apparently not no i mean sometimes I mean, it happens all different ways but this was this was yeah. one of those rare ones where i just happened to cross paths with him before he even knew which publisher he was going to call home right and so um i kind of i kind of got smuggled into the the broader yeah. publisher negotiations that his company flavorworks was making I see. So, yeah, it has to be said for a man still so young, you have an extraordinary amount of credits, 144, according to the IMDb, <laughs> uh, video, documentary, short films, TV, etc., etc. Now, my probably ignorant assumption would be about an FMV game would be that it's more like scoring for TV or film and less adaptive and interactive in the way that we've seen from something like journey or abzu is that completely unfounded and ignorant it, it is it is a reasonable assumption to make yeah. it is in this case wildly inaccurate uh good good uh it, it's but it's it, it it was as an assumption that i thought would be likely going in i you know i've scored quite a few films and i've got that i've got that sort of um workflow figured out pretty well mm. and um and yet I, I kind of assumed that um, this would be, you know, sort of like film 2.0 or, or film 1.5 in the sense that it was basically going to be the, the formula that I'm used to, um, and particularly the nature of the collaboration with the filmmakers, or in this case, the hybrid team of filmmakers and game designers. Right. Um, but I turned out to be wildly wrong because... Um, it's actually probably the most adaptive and technically complex score I've ever done. Um, uh. And the reason for that is twofold. Uh, first off, the game Jack set as a kind of general rule that he never wanted the player to go more than around 15 seconds before some kind of interaction was needed again, because he okay. never wanted it to feel like an interactive movie. It should very much be a video game that's just mm -hmm. using the kind of vocabulary and language of cinema. And that, that gives it a fundamental separation from things like, you know, Bandersnatch or, or traditional FMV games, which often were essentially just movies masquerading as games with sort of token interactions. He wanted this to have the yeah. depth of what games can offer, um, but just using film as its language. So uh, as a result of that kind of rule, the sort of 15 seconds rule, there's very constantly like literally multiple times per minute opportunities for the player to make some pretty significant impacts on the unfolding of the story, the characters and the, the world, the environment, that kind of thing. And that has consequences for the score. So not every single interaction necessarily will alter the, the music, but the, the great majority of them do. 
And so, um, but that, so that's all I said. It was a twofold reason. That's all kind of reason. Number one, it's just a very interactive game, but Mm. secondly, interactive and from a narrative stance, like it's not, you know, obviously a game that, you know, like a platformer is technically far more interactive because at all moments, the player is doing stuff. Um, and hypothetically, this is less so since it's, you know, every 10, 15 seconds that the player is doing, doing stuff. But I would say it's more narratively consequentially in- interactive than even most traditional video games because you are in a position to be altering the tone and the mood and the story and the characters pretty regularly as opposed to working your way through a level for an hour and then yeah. at the end of that level something narratively significant happens. You know, it's, right. it's, it's, the, it's, about, it's about how often the kind of subtext is evolving mm. and, the, and, and subtext and the... The text, as it were, the the actual yeah. core story and plotline and all that. So, so that's all kind of reason number one. The second reason is that I have long believed that as as gamers, and I very much count myself as a gamer, we have let game developers and particularly composers kind of off the hook for um, standards standards of elegance. Uh, I'll say for the majority of the history of games, and what I mean by that is. And, 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 I, and I say that knowing full well that it's damn hard to do, and it's really, especially in the earlier days, it was technologically impossible. But what I'm referring to is things like you are in a scene and talking to somebody and they're telling you something really huge and important. And so there's kind of like brooding dramatic music telling you, wow, this is a big deal. And then you, you know, click X and move to the next scene and the music abruptly cuts wherever it was mm, and mm-hmm. midstream and moves on. And to me, that is just unforgivably bad storytelling. Right. And, but we've accepted it. And, and a lot of yeah. gamers don't, they don't bat an eye about that because it, they've had 30 years of kind of indoctrination. That that's just yeah. okay. And so my big quest with certainly starting with things like flow and, and then obviously like journey, but, but even, even on more sort of quote, traditional games, like, Assassin's Creed Syndicate, Mm. my obsession has been to make the music as elegant in its execution. Never, never mind the notes themselves. Obviously I try to write good music, but the, and, and, you know, sometimes that that's all consuming as it is, uh, or actually not sometimes always that's as all consuming as, as can be. But the elegance of its execution is something I equally prioritize. Um, so that, if you were to watch a linear playback of it, it should move in and out of the scenes with the same kind of level of smoothness as if you were just watching a film. I, to me, the the captured video playback is kind of the ultimate test, that it should have all the same level of craft as you would expect of a film. If you were watching right. a Star Wars film or Lord of the Rings or any film and the music just cut when the scene was over or when the camera cut to a new angle or something like that, mm. you would you would rightfully call that out as an amateur production mm-hmm. uh, or, or somehow tech, technically glitched. Um, and the fact that we don't do that for games, I think is an unfair allowance. Well, I'll, so on a, on a game like Erica, the reason why this ended up being so technically complex was that not only do I normally hold this as a priority, but because of the nature of the game being FMV, you don't naturally give it the same leeway you would give to another game. If you yeah. do those very traditional gamey music, abrupt cuts and harsh crossfades and all that kind of thing, it's really noticeable because your brain can't help but evaluate this as if it were a movie. So I realized that I didn't have any of the leash that I normally 
ignore uh, or not leash, but like lifeline. Normally mm. the kind of uh, floating uh, lifeline, you know, like those little inner tubes that they throw you out in the ocean. Normally yeah. I, I don't try to rely on that knowing that gamers will accept a certain amount of, of, of it. But in this case, I, I felt like I really had none. It just, it feels too much like watching a film, even though you're constantly interacting with it. So Anyway, it's a long answer, but yes, it is actually extremely technically complicated. And thank God for Adam Lidbetter at um, Sony as my kind of brother in arms in uh, getting really, really nuanced with the way the integration was set up because uh, the game, the game needed it. Uh, and um, and honestly, I could probably still continue to tweak and iterate and try to improve it. But yeah. as, as they say, sometimes you just have to let it go and release it. So cool way. It's probably, yeah. yeah, it's probably flawed in really meaningful and significant ways, but I did my best. <laughs> so there's a little video up on YouTube about uh, behind the scenes, uh, Know Thy Soundtrack, I see. You're very much on the cutting edge. That was partially what held me up because that was set to auto, auto, uh, play, auto publish right. quite literally as we began recording. <laughs> there you go. Well, there you go. Uh, and yes, and I, I want to say, uh, and I always want to say to our listener, I am in no way beholden to any of this uh, promoting stuff the pr is never that demanding nor nor the composer but uh, the game is out now it's available on ps4 it's only eight pounds 99 where i live uh, so i guess it's like ten dollars or something like that which seems a, a reasonable proposition um obviously we're playing a, a couple of pieces from the soundtrack for promotional and preview purposes but you can get the soundtrack on bandcamp it's also on spotify i see already yeah it should be basically all the online retailers at this point it's the way to do it Yep. Uh, so as always, we're going to talk a bit more about Erica, but as always, when we have a composer on, we always want to find out uh, what pieces that uh, inspire them and that they've enjoyed from other games and other games composers. And this first one is from a soundtrack that we've enjoyed before. We've also covered the game on our, our sister podcast, which is Kane and Rince, where we deep dive review back in issue 251. We covered Everybody's Gone to the Rapture. This is a soundtrack which absolutely stirs me for me as with uh, as with your work i think on the games that that i've played like journey i think it really elevates it um beyond uh you know if it was a silent piece it just it wouldn't have the same effect so this is jessica curry's and you've chosen carry me back to her arms of all the pieces why did you go for this one it was that that for me I, honestly it's a difficult choice because there is just yeah. so much spectacular music in in the game i mean virtually every cue is a masterpiece but yeah. um um that one for me was a moment in the game that was just transcendent it 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 was one of those where i felt like as a composer i was simultaneously terrified and inspired because i thought the bar has risen so high <laughs> yeah. uh i don't know who of us can keep up anymore it just it was a really magical moment in another in a game that was awash in moments like that i i adored it i was definitely one of the rapture fans and um and likewise of everything that she and her husband dan do through the their studio the chinese room that you know i'd been a big fan of dear esther and amnesia machine for mm. pigs and um and so this was just kind of the next evolution in that great uh, body of work they were they were and continue to build together
that's Carry Me Back to Her Arms, of course, by Jessica Curry from Everybody's Gone to the Rapture, 2015 now. I specifically also uh, will add that I chose that mm-hmm. one because after she sent me the early mixes of the score before the game was out, she and I are very right. close friends and um, and kind of mutual admirers. And, and I, she's done a lot of radio hosting and things like that the last couple of years yeah. uh, in the UK yeah. as well. And yes. And um, she jokingly sent me a very sweet email where she said, I'm doing all of this just as an excuse to put your music on the radio. And I (laughs) thought, um, well, anytime I have the opportunity to return the favor, God knows I'm gonna because um, you won't find much uh, more exuberant fan of her work than me. I just absolutely adore it. And um, and so uh, but in this particular case, also, I remember I was uh, getting ready to finishing the score to Abzu and choir mm. is a big part of that. And when she sent me these mixes, I, I remember I called her up immediately and said, who engineered these? Because this is some of the best sounding mm. choir recording I've ever heard, yeah. certainly in a game, but kind of in general. And I want to, I want to, I want, I want to know want who that. did that. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, exactly. And, and I called my friends at Sony who, who I'd worked with on journey and who were working with her on rapture to ask the same and made sure that I had the same folks lined up in terms of both the choir, the engineer, the studio, everything, because I, I knew I wanted, even though Abzu has a very different kind of vibe and, and much yeah. of the, much of the choir is treated in a very kind of ethereal way mm. where it's heavily processed and you don't get the kind of naturalism. There's enough places where I did need that, that it was, I just wanted to try to give it a fighting chance at sounding anywhere near that good. So, so that score has a very special place in my heart too, because Abzu ended up being pretty well received and i i feel like i owe a lot yeah. of that to um to her kind of inspiration so i couldn't yeah. i couldn't i would be remiss not to include it in a list like this absolutely she uh she's so self-effacing as well she seems to you know sometimes when she tweets she almost seems to have imposter syndrome and seems to be almost unaware of how brilliant some of her work is which is oh yeah of course quite endearing uh she lives very near here where i where i am now in brighton in the uk uh we attend oh, yeah. the same we we attend the same sporting church at the weekend. She's also a Brighton Hove <laughs> Albion season ticket holder. I love it. As a uh, as a sort of segue question, it sort of ties in. Which gaming composition is there one that you wish you were responsible for? Like if if uh, not that you'd want to take it away from somebody else, but is there is there a piece of music that you've heard in another game that you thought, God, I wish I'd written that. You know, it's funny. I've been asked similar sort of variations on that questions in the past and i honestly don't have a good answer for that because most of my favorite game music is wrapped up in my love of that game and in my and in in many cases in most cases my my friendship or at least admiration of the composer yeah that makes sense and so it's 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 very hard for me to kind of imagine a world in which i did it because it's such a product of their personality and their like like a moment ago we were talking about um uh, Gary Scheiman's, you know, Welcome mm. to Rapture cue, which is one of those singular moments in the history of game music, in my, mm. in my opinion, for many, many reasons. Um, and and Bioshock to me is also, you know, among my favorite games of all time. I mean, it was a it was a really revelatory experience, and I and I went into it thinking, you know, I'm already a diehard fan of System Shock too, and how are they possibly going to live up to that? And then they managed to explode it out of the water. Ken, Ken Levine truly. Yeah. is is one of the the, the all-time greats in terms of design and and vision uh, and yet uh i wouldn't like trade places or or kind of swap no, out right. uh, and and nor nor would i have ever written that piece that way mm-hmm. um yeah 
And so it's just one of those, it's kind of like this thought exercise that I'm sorry to say kind of goes nowhere with me. Uh, uh, I hate to, I hate to kind of weasel out of your question. No, no, that's absolutely fine. So uh, we talked about Abzu there. So we've got a, a, an epic piece of yours coming up, this uh, atmospheric, cinematic, beautiful piece from um, Abzu. Uh, this is a game that many people will have access to. It was on PS Plus over two years ago now. I can't believe it. Uh, it's also on Game Pass, so you might have it in your library sitting there waiting to be played yeah. if you haven't played it already. Um, for those who don't know, the very reductive description is journey but underwater that i i appreciate that is that is very reductive but i'm sure you've heard that description used before and since and uh <laughs> in, you know people saying and they even got the same composer in but um but in terms of this piece so you've got the choir and one thing that i'm interested about in this piece is the there appears to be some actual words or or language being used but i couldn't quite make out what it is is there a, is there a story behind all that yeah absolutely there's a text that is used all through that score, which derives from a tablet called the Enuma Elish, which is basically, it's a Babylonian sort of stone mm -hmm. obelisk of sorts that contains the oldest known creation myth. It, it predates all other religions uh, in terms of a creation story mm. of the world um, and the language is called Akkadian and it's a poem that Matt Nava the creative director who who had been the art director on Journey and Flower um, he actually put it in front of me and that's where he derived the name of the game and, and also a lot of early inspiration so the full text which they sing in the end credits of uh, Abzu which was called then were created the gods in the midst of heaven that that title as with a lot of the other titles uh, derives from this the first nine lines of the Enuma Elish, which is when in the height of heaven was not named and the earth beneath did not yet bear a name and the primeval mm. Abzu who begat them almost like the mother god and mm. chaos Tiamat the mother of them both which I, mm. I love chaos being the, the mother of creation. Uh, their waters were mingled together and no field was formed. No marsh was to be seen when of the gods, none had been called into being and none bore a name and no destinies were ordained. Then were created the gods in the midst of heaven. Um, and that's how that's kind of the opening sort of prelude to their uh, poem explaining the origin of the world as they believed it to be true back uh, many thousands of years ago in, in uh, ancient Babylonia. So that, that text I use all through the score. I'm actually not really a huge fan of the kind of cliche, open vowel, ethereal choir singing oohs and ahs because to I me, yeah. I, you'll you'll almost never hear me do that um, because I feel like the 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 color of the human voice enunciating text is one of the most beautiful things a, mm. a choir can do, and it's very interesting and it not and I and I just love what it lets you do with subtext. So. I have them singing very broken up fragments of that text all throughout Abzu. And then we kind of hear it properly during uh, the finale there and in the credits that follow. Amazing. So anyway, th there you go. That's the answer on, on the text. <laughs> That's a, a better answer than I could possibly have hoped for. Well, listen out for that listener and enjoy uh, the full 10 minute and a bit version of Their Waters Were Mingled Together.
from Abzu. By Giant Squid, of course. You can play it, as I say, on your consoles. It's also, it was a PC, there was a PC version originally. And it came to Switch slightly more recently, I think, within living memory, because the Switch is a newer machine. Yep, yep, pretty recently. Yeah. Uh, and that was, of course, by my guest, Austin Wintry. Uh, so you've embraced various experimental methods of composition. You improvise live regularly. Uh, which of these methods do you think you'd be able to, or a, a composer could, comfortably employ as part of a larger game project, such as an open world game or something like that? Uh, well, I'm not entirely sure I understand your your question, because um, to me, when you start talking about music in an open world game, very often the conversation turns towards the idea of procedural music, yeah. um, which is, you know, kind of, for those unfamiliar with that term, it refer- that, that it's kind of algorithmically or otherwise computer generated, you know, where it either some through some kind of formula and raw synthesizers or through a kind of data bank of Lego-esque musical building blocks, the system is assembling things on the fly as opposed to following a kind of musical script like a traditional game score would. Yes. And that's all very distinctly different from improvisation. That's true. Uh, yeah. Improvisation, you know, relies very much on this kind of spur of the moment thing. And also improvisation is, is uh, in a way, I mean, there's a huge amount of formula that is always hidden in improvisation. It's part of the key of what makes people really good at it, really good at it, because mm. they are they are intentionally leaning on some patterns that are well, you know, understood by their their fingers or their vocal cords or whatever. Yeah. Um, it's one of the great kind of not so secrets of, of great jazz artists that they can improvise like crazy, but there's usually a kind of skeleton to it that is very familiar um, and very kind of standardized in a way. All, all that is very different from the notion of kind of procedural music, um, yes. but how they would intersect. I'm sure there's a million plays, places in which they could. I haven't really dabbled in that. I've certainly dealt with procedural music before, um, and to varying degrees also depends on where you draw the line between just highly adaptive and procedural. I've never mm. found a kind of concrete definition amongst my, my game audio peers, particularly mm. on the technical side of things, because mm. I hear a lot of things described as procedural, which to me are, are not. I have, a t- I have a, a tend towards a kind of pure definition for that, where it has to be kind of truly algorithmically created yes, absolutely um, yeah. but uh but i've heard just highly interactive scores referred to as procedural and mm. and i i may be the one who's wrong about that but Semantics. in any case yeah yeah exactly but my my use of improvisation is almost exclusively in my case uh a, a live performance thing uh, lately i've been performing kind of around the globe with um this fabulous painter from costa rica angela bermudez where we we improvise together. She paints uh, on a you know on a canvas traditionally right. with, with mm. usually acrylic paint, um, and she's painting in an improvised way, inspired by what I'm playing. But at the same time, I'm improvising at the piano, inspired by what she's painting. So we're in kind of this mm. chaotic free for all where neither of us is really in charge. We're both actively pulling from and pushing towards the other, um, and um, We've done it with other musicians. We have some coming soon that we'll be experimenting with, with like a voice actor improvising a narration and just oh, to wow. see where it goes. But it's all kind of a creative exercise for the benefit of the audience. We, we, we like to tell the audience before we start that we're going to wordlessly, collaboratively, but without rehearsal, 
tell them a story together. Hmm. Um, Where in the world are you taking that? Is there places that our listeners might be able to get to to see this in action? Um, I off the top of my head, I can't remember where our next one will be. Uh, will be. Ah, I, I I would have to look. Uh, if you That's just okay. follow we'll either just, of us online, I was going to uh, say we'll follow yeah, you. We're, we're always promoting our upcoming uh, um, shindigs. In terms of shows that you've already done of that nature, how how high or how low have you come out in terms of uh, have you come out of every one on a, on a complete buzz thinking that went just amazingly and and you're happy with the music you played in the paintings that that have gone with or have you ever come out and thinking yeah that you know that one wasn't so hot <laughs> uh it it it's all the spectrum it right. it you know very often i will think well i don't know how much um inspiring material came out of my fingers this time yeah. Right. Um, but then she'll say, oh, I, you know, I thought I thought it was really nice. I love the part yeah. where you did this, that, this, that. And that really inspired this, that. And then meanwhile, she'll, you know, want to throw the painting straight into a fire. Right. Uh, yeah. You know, gotcha. proclaiming it to be the worst painting she's ever made. And I'll be <laughs> yeah. saying, oh, look, it's beautiful. And of course, never True mind artist. the fact that. Uh, yeah, exactly. In, invariably, after every show, the audience will kind of bum rush the stage to get a closer look at the painting and. And we've even had kind of spontaneous auctions emerge where people start sort oh, wow. of fighting over the right to buy it. Um, Is that and, encouraged? Um, Does that go through? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. yeah oh, okay. for sure. It's, right. it's, you know, artists earning a living here. So um, Yeah, fair enough. Um, uh, no, it's, you it, can't it, auction off your, your part of it, though, as such. I mean, obviously, you contributed to the painting in a, you know, it's the sort of thing that could get complicated in a court of law. <laughs> <laughs> well, well, it... Uh, it has never, uh, it has never <laughs> been any kind of issue, and I am always more than happy to stand out of the way of that. Uh, <laughs> and uh, because you know, in this case, as just a, on a technical level, her selling those paintings is much closer to the core business of her ar- career as yeah, an artist yeah. than mine, where this is, in many respects, kind of a side venture from my primary career. Uh, and I would happily defer. Plus, most of the time, we're being hosted by an organization that's that's sort of paying us some kind of performance fee or sure. something along those lines, mm. you know? So, uh, there, there, there's usually other extenuating circumstances. In some cases we've also done it where the painting kind of automatically was, uh, owned by our host. Like yeah. the, gotcha. like the, um, like the, Package for deal. example, we, yeah, we, we just did one with an orchestra in Florida mm. where we were kind of, we, I was guest conducting the orchestra and I said, can I do this show with Anhila beforehand, you know, as like a pre-concert event. Mm. And so the conductor, the main conductor and artistic director of the orchestra, he kind of assumed ownership of the painting as part of the overall deal we negotiated, which I was all too happy with because uh, it certainly was finding its way into an appreciative home as a result. Sounds great. Just one more technical question on that particular strand of, of your artistic efforts. Does she work on a massive canvas or a small canvas that's shown to people via screens or? It's almost always been the latter. It's been a kind of manageable, um, you know, in, in our, in our, uh, um, American imperial system, you know, like maybe a, yeah, we can do that. Two, two feet by a foot and a half kind of canvas. You know, it's not, it's not a small uh, canvas, but it's certainly not gargantuan. It's not a mural or anything. No, that no, be... yeah, that would. I mean, there are <laughs> artists that do that, but obviously yeah. the sacrifice is it's it it increases the spectacle, but at the expense of detail. Mm, of and yeah. as an artist, she's very 
uh, detail oriented. It's mm-hmm. it's not unlike me in my in my composing. I I don't tend to take interest in like the big giant grand sweeping gestures. I I love the 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 sort of needlework mm-hmm. and um and uh, she's very sort of similar and compatible in that manner. So um so yeah, it's it's uh it's almost always we've got a camera mounted on a tripod that's projecting a close up over her shoulder so the audience can kind of get a real close view of the action. Superb. Well, look out for that. Uh, of course, you'll follow Austin on, on Twitter and uh, see when those shows are coming up. Next up, we have Austin's next selection by artists or uh, composers that he admires. In this case, it's Disaster Peace, Rich Freeland, and uh, a, a short cue from Hyperlight Drifter. Uh, so you've said that uh, this score of all his transcends the rest. What is it about Hyperlight Drifter's music that touches you? Well, obviously, most folks would r- most likely know his score to Fez, mm-hmm. uh, kind of his monster indie hit that that really solidified his reputation. Although he's he's an incredibly prolific composer who's done like ten thousand scores and and. Um, and uh, we became acquainted uh, around the time of Fez and, and friends not long after. And and I th- always thought his writing was 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 really good. He has a really great way to kind of choose just the right notes and not one note more, uh, for lack mm-hmm. of a better way to put it. Like like Fez particularly is full of so many cues that are deceptively simple, but not anyone could do that. But what I loved about Hyperlight Drifter was it really took it to the next level because he involved quite a lot of you know, acoustic performance, for example, of himself playing the piano. And he really reached out beyond the kind of hybrid synth and retro chiptune sort of vibe that had dominated a lot of his work. And he wrote something that was really uh, this unbelievably beautiful marriage between the kind of analog and the um, acoustic. Um, Or or I suppose we could lump all of that into analog so we could sort of the the digital and the analog met this unbelievably superb marriage in uh, in hyperlight and so i i just thought uh, of all of his scores it's it's my favorite um and it was i i honestly was at a loss of which track to choose because no one track does a great job of summarizing his artistic achievement i think in that score it's in contrast to the cue that i shared from everybody's gone to the rapture which to me kind of perfectly encapsulates everything i love about that score uh, this 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 one I struggle. It's like it's like the score can only be taken as the aggregate of all of it uh, because he goes so many different places and there's so many different textures, and some are more electronic than others and more mm. acoustic than others and that kind of thing. And so I kind of did my best, but I encourage people to listen to the whole thing. I mean, I, of course, not to say I I'm implying they don't need to listen to the whole of Everybody's Gone to the Rapture. That's without question one of the greatest game scores ever written mm-hmm. uh yeah. but i think to fully understand its artistic merit uh it, it, one track just simply can't do
Hyperlight Drifter, Vignette Corruption by Disaster Peace. You can play that on pretty much anything right now. Uh, we covered it on the Cane and Rinse podcast in issue 326, went into some depth on uh, its gestation and its birth and its subsequent support that turned it from being a rather unfriendly and challenge, perhaps overly challenging game into one that people really, really love and has kind of fulfilled the promise of the original Kickstarter, I suppose. It was quite hard. <laughs> it was too hard for most normal human beings. But that often happens with these, uh, you know, relatively small. This, this goes all the way back to, I mean, I've been gaming since the 70s. And one of the, the things that was kind of a cliche in the 80s with all the home bedroom coding was that they would just be play tested by the people who were making them. And so they were, you know, often just ridiculously difficult because they knew them inside out and so on and so forth. So yep. I think there was, a, there was a little throwback to that perhaps with, uh, with the original Hyperlight Drifter. But fortunately, uh, we get uh, sometimes the community feedback is actually sane and rational and reasonable <laughs> and worth acting upon. <laughs> yep. Um, now this is some. This is semantically slightly different to the previous question. Imagine there was a game that you heard of that you knew of the concept of, but had no composer attached, had no soundtrack. Is there one that's uh, from the past that you would have liked to have approached, uh, you know, as a composer, but with a completely, you know, fresh palette kind of thing, so to speak? That's an interesting question. I mean, that's there are so many that I love that. It's hard for me to imagine, but I can't imagine I wouldn't have been overjoyed to be part of. I mean, the first thing that came to mind, funny enough, but probably because I just I just love it. It would have been the first thing you could have phrased that question a hundred different ways. And it would have probably been the first to come to mind just yeah. simply because I, I think about it all the time. And I love it is the original Mass Effect trilogy. Right. Um, oh, wow. Some of my favorite gaming experience of my whole life. Yeah, sure. Um, and um, and there's some really. There's some really great musical moments in those scores. I, I um, uh, that was one of those where I remember it, I kind of use it as my patient zero to describe very haphazard and clunky execution of game scores. Although yeah. with full sympathy to the team, because that yeah. game was so outsized compared to its ambition. Mm -hmm. uh, like it, the, the the relative team, especially on the first game that was making it, compared with the scope of its storytelling and its uh, sort of general mm. amb ambition, I guess, uh, just put them in a kind of an unwinnable scenario because it's also sort of a niche genre. It's a fairly hardcore like story RPG. Yeah. Um, and um, and uh, it's but it's it's so it, that's like they they couldn't have presumed the the mainstream you know support or sales <laughs> that yeah. other games might enjoy. So they had yeah. to be pretty conservative, I think. And mm. so yeah. How much kind of full-blown sci-fi have you done? I'm trying. I'm looking, thinking of your game CV, and uh, there's no kind of obvious spacey space game in there. Would you, is that something you'd aspire to? Oh, do? of course, yeah, absolutely. Mm. Um, yeah, no, I mean, it's I, I, I've, I play lots of those sorts of games, uh, and um, but one of my favorite games as a child of the '90s. Uh, you know, I started my gaming experience as a young kid in the late eighties, but, but a lot of my formative gaming experiences took place in the sure. early and mid nineties and, and the X-Wing TIE oh, fighter yeah. and X-Wing Alliance uh, sim mm. flight sims <laughs> or space sims, I guess. Yeah. Those are some of my absolute favorite games ever. Mm. Um, and, um, and uh, so, you know, 
the a project like that, you know, like a, a Star Citizen or or um, oh, right. or wow. um, or uh, <laughs> Elite Dangerous or or those kinds of experiences. Yeah. You know, there's been a big resurgence of those kinds of games lately. Obviously, No Man's Sky is kind of partially that type of game. And yeah, um, th- those to me, you know, if someone came along with something like that, I-, I-, I would obviously be I'd be thrilled and excited. But I- but also, you know, the truest answer, that's sort of me, the gamer answering. But me, the professional composer is that. The the game I look forward to the most is one that I couldn't have seen coming. And Erica is actually a perfect example of right. that because yeah. when someone shows up with a thing that I thought, wow, you know, I, this isn't just a derivative of 50 others in a genre that I happen to love. It's actually kind of its own new thing. Journey was very much the same way where I, I, I saw it and I told Genova, I didn't even see it. They didn't have anything yet. I just said, um, he, he described the... Uh, premise of what he was after and some of the basics of like, it'll probably be set in a desert and blah, blah, blah. But it, there was nothing existed. I mean, the game, this was fully 10 years ago, early 2009, three years before the game came out. And, um, and I said, I didn't realize I've been waiting my whole game for someone to make this game. Mm, uh, but yeah. now that you say it, it dawns on me that I have been waiting and, and I can't believe I get to be part of it. So I, that's always invariably how it is. I, it's something I just couldn't have seen coming, and that's what gets me most excited. So on the big-budget, kind of high-profile front, uh, the next track we're going to hear is from your work for Assassin's Creed Syndicate. And uh, our, our Thomas from the forum, who's also a, uh, a music guy, works for Laced Records, who release a lot of uh, game soundtracks on vinyl. Mm-hmm. He says, uh, the range of projects you've taken is staggering, really, from the smallest to the largest games. Was that serendipity or strategy on your part uh, along? He was thinking along the lines of like Guillermo del Toro used to famously talk about he'd do one for Hollywood and one for himself kind of thing. <laughs> it's honestly just the happenstance of um, of uh, how things have gone. Uh, I, I, you know, a project shows up uh, one day that's, you know, a certain size and then another project shows up a different day that's a different size. And if they're exciting and, you know, you're available, all the other. Yeah, all exactly. There's there's time available and there's um, uh, the, you know, the kind of score thereafter seems compatible with my reaction to it and all that kind of stuff. Um, then off we go. Uh, I don't really I don't really have an agenda towards size and scale. Yeah, um, I don't prefer big over small or small over big. I, I really just love to be part of things that are, are, are meaningful and that challenge me as a composer. And, and above all, my goal is to work with people that inspire me and, and push me to be better than I otherwise could be on my own. And so the, the who I'm working with governs yeah. everything by an order of magnitude before we start getting into things like, well, what genre of music will I be? playing in is it something i haven't done before or how much are they paying or any of those other kind of details yeah. you know, it's not that any of those things are irrelevant but it, it's it's very um it's very much about who i'm with before anything else mm. so this one is an interesting one it's a song this is uh, sounds like it's from london the musical now I'll, I'll confess i'm way behind on my assassin's creed we're currently covering uh, our fourth assassin's creed game for the show so i am currently playing assassin's creed 4 black flag which came out two years before uh syndicate so yep, yep. Uh, i can't possibly jump ahead so i'm really interested about the the vocal on this and the lyrics and the context in the game in which it's used yeah so there's there's a series of nine 
songs that we call murder ballads. Um, that was a suggestion of the audio director. Right. Where they, because Assassin's Creed have always been very, very intensely immersive in the way that they try to so accurately and with such crazy detail recreate the world in which you're exploring. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty, it's pretty staggering and, and awe-inspiring. And mm. so for Victorian London, one of the things that our audio director, Lydia Andrew, was very keen to replicate was the, the pervasiveness of street performers and buskers and things like that who um, would be playing very period authentic hymn tunes, folk songs, and things like that. Yeah. And so there, there was a whole side production in parallel to my score of researching and recording all these kind of public domain tunes that would have been heard on the streets. But Lydia had this wonderful idea where she said, what if there's also original music sprinkled in the world diegetically as if it was being written by some anonymous local composer that is happening in reaction to your actions in the game. Ah, so as you assassinate these high profile figures in London, in the city, you know, like, uh, like a, a very high profile banker, for example, or a, or a, a doctor who's running an insane asylum and, and, you know, sort of secretly torturing the patients as you, as you make your way through the, the, the kill list, as it were, some composer anonymously in the city is taking note of the the subtle shifts in the power dynamic of the elite and writing songs about it. And and so the idea was write a song from the perspective of somebody that couldn't possibly know the inside story, but kind of has their ear to the rumor mill. And so the songs were sung. There's multiple variations sung by men and women mm. with different instruments, some very drunkenly, some very <laughs> properly, yeah. but they kind of appear very, they're kind of like Easter eggs because they'll only, they'll only appear in the world after you've completed the, the relevant mission that uh, they're attached to. Yes. So you won't hear a song obviously about an event that hasn't happened yet. Um, and so the the uh, lyrics were composed by this fabulous group in Australia called Tripod. These three guys that I had worked with before on a on a on a theater piece on a stage show that we did together the year before called This Gaming Life, and actually premiered it right in the middle of when I was working on Assassin's Creed. And so when Lydia proposed this idea of the murder ballads, I said I'd love to bring these guys in. They're amazing songwriters and composers and lyricists. And uh, they have this just unbelievable wit to what they do. And so we, we wrote those songs together. In fact, there's a couple of the songs that they, they sent me an idea where they said, hey, what do you think about this? And I, and I heard it and I said, honestly, if I insert myself into this, I'm only just going to hold it back. And so like one of them, one, one of the best ones is called Jokes, Jokes, Jokes. And that's just mm. fully them. Uh, that was one where my job was basically to approve it and pass it along to Ubisoft for their approval. And uh, and I and I produced it, of course. Uh, but um, but yeah, they, they're they're amazing talent. So the case of Underground, that was actually quite the opposite. I wrote out the music, and I had no idea. It's it's the final one, so it's kind of meant to be the 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 epilogue to it all. It's the yeah. one that's the most sort of non diegetic mm. in its in its conception because it's it's more like an end credit song yeah. in its in its in its sort of foundation. And so I I just wrote the the, the music, the actual. Uh, piano part and that this melody, this very simple, you know, and I, and I sent it to them and I said, guys, this is for the end of the game. I have no idea what to suggest for lyrics, but here you go. And then they mm -hmm. sent it back and they didn't change anything mm -hmm. about what I had done. And yet mm -hmm. these lyrics fit it 
with such precision and beauty that I thought it's as if it all emerged in one spontaneous moment. I couldn't believe it. They're such masters. And so it was going to go in the game and uh, just like all the rest. And our, our music supervisor said, um, on a whim, I put that song in the final cutscene of the game just to see how it worked. And I think it's amazing. And mm. so that's what we're going to do. Great. So it was never written for that, but it's literally the last piece when you beat the game that you, during, during the last cutscene, during the, you know, in the final moments where you're seeing the, the, the present day, this song plays and it, but it was, it was, it was actually not intended for that purpose. Yeah. Interesting. Well, let's listen to it. Enjoy it. Underground. Take a look around lively old London Buzzing crowds we sweat and we revel Red-cheeked shouts and songs in the flicker of the gaslight Eager blighty bursts from the cobblestones Racing, climbing, blooming fertility Born from secret seeds that are scattered in the night time London is fed upon the meat of the dead They're one shallow inch below the town Underground, underground, leave them underground Them that whispered dreams that only poisoned us Them that told us lies of their bravery Them that preached of progress and put us in the poorhouse Them done horrid murder on bloody stages Them that loudly crowed their humility Lords and dames that sung in the chapels on a Sunday all quiet now, their mouths are stopped up by mud They lie flung in rags and make no sound Underground, underground, leave them underground Those who fought for something better Those who taught by how they lived Loved ones taken long before their work was done Underground, underground Leave them underground Underground, underground Leave them underground Underground Assassin's Creed Syndicate 2015 now a few Assassin's Creed's ago 
the one that Austin Wintry wrote the sound for, the music for, I should say. Uh, thank you for that. Now, uh, I hope you don't mind if we just break off for a moment here for uh, to advertise some live stuff and some charity stuff. We've got two shows coming out before this event happens, and uh, they asked us to promote it. So here we go. Video Game Music Jazz Festival on August the 31st from 6 to 11 p.m. EDT, that is. Five VGM jazz groups, including uh, one of which we've featured at least here on the Sound of Play show before, are teaming up to bring you Free Play, a free international music festival that will be streaming on Twitch. The bands participating are VGM Collective from New York, the 8-Bit Jazz Heroes from California, Nice, Edmund is Super Sumo Wrestler from Tokyo, The Consoles from Sydney, and The Hard Modes from Virginia, uh, an international lineup. They'll be playing back to back hour long sets in what will be, to their knowledge, the first strictly online international music festival. Also, alongside bringing some great live music to you, they're raising money for the Able Gamers charity, which is a worthy cause indeed. So head to the GoFundMe page, the official website or the event on Facebook, the video game Music Jazz Festival. That's August 31st. Sounds fun. I'll check it out if I can. Now, next selection. This is from a game that I don't think too many people have a lot of fondness for. And I'm going to say that this theme is, uh, is one that deserved a more successful game or possibly a more successful movie as you've said austin it's uh, it's redolent of amblin in the 80s and stuff like that yeah th this is uh bear mccreary's theme to dark void which i recently interviewed him for a podcast yeah. and i was revisiting his older game scores you know he had done one of the socom games and i remember i also worked with airtight games uh not long after dark void and so we had a lot of kind of friends in common um and uh, and I went back and listened to it and he and I were talking and I said, you know, that score is so old fashioned. It's funny because he had just done this movie that this this summer called Rim of the World for mm. Netflix, which was an intentional kind of Amblin uh, styled, you know, 80s Spielberg. Yeah, I hear children. that stuff is quite popular. <laughs> yeah, it's really come into vogue, obviously, Stranger <laughs> Things particularly, but yeah. instead of the 80s synthwave kind of approach, it was mm. like more like the John Williams, Bruce Broughton, right. um, you know, young Sherlock Holmes or Indiana Jones style 80s yes. Amblin, grand orchestral, larger than life sort of fairy tale manifest kind of idea. And um, and so he um, wrote this score and I remember listening to Dark Void and saying that's actually even more amblin than than rim of the world in my opinion i just right. i just i just loved it so yeah you're right the game is not particularly beloved it was i think a very not quite finished on delivery uh project as as often happens when oh, when yeah. um you just kind of run out of budget and have to pull the trigger because they're it's damn hard to make games but that still was um a score that i thought was really beautiful and also very atypical because it was recorded uh, all in Los Angeles with um, oh, okay. Hol Hol Hollywood orchestras, which in those days was kind of common. Um, and uh, due to tightening of restrictions from the musicians union, they essentially made it impossible and it never happens anymore at all. Mm. So it was one of the kind of, it was part of a, a rare breed of Hollywood recorded game scores. And I, I love, I love it for that reason. Cause as someone who lives in Los Angeles, I have a lot of love for my local musician community and it's tragic that I basically never get to work with them. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. 
Well, let's enjoy it. You may not remember it from the game, you, but this, yeah, like for me, I, I played the, they did a little, um, a sort of 8-bit pseudo retro game. I think it was Way Forward did it called uh, Dark Void Zero. And I played that one, but because the reviews of Dark Void were less than stellar, I gave it a miss, but uh, it meant it's meant that for nine years, this 2010 game, I've missed out on this fantastic piece of Bear McCreary sounding uh, sound work. So let's hear the main theme from Dark Void. Airtight Games and Capcom, Dark Void from, yeah, 2010 on that generation, PS3, 360 and PC. Bear McCreary, you may know the name from things like The Walking Dead. Yeah, and of course, the recent uh, God of War. Absolutely, God of War, yeah. Yeah, I'm sure we've played some of that on here too. If not, you owe it to your listeners. It's just an absolutely wonderful score. Right. Seventh track for Austin here is from, I mean, I don't know how much music in total, like in terms of time you've written across the three Banner Saga games, 
but this is from the most recent one the the trilogy concluder uh, and our Thomas again says the Banner Saga trilogy scores are an incredible feat, a Wagnerian triumph, no less. Any plans to create a decent length symphonic suite for performance like a Lord of the Rings movie score or a Star Wars type thing? You know, it, it that could be quite a lot of fun. A lot of the score has been adapted for live performance. Mm -hmm. And I, I'm actually going to be doing a big concert in Poland in a couple of months of all of my um, not not of all uh, a concert of my own exploring a bunch of different scores of mine from Journey, Abzu, Banner Saga, Assassin's Creed. I'm actually going to throw some Erica in there um, and also some music as a preview from an upcoming game called The Pathless, which is with uh, Giant Squid, the creators of Abzu. We're yes. doing a new game mm. uh, and um, kind of two thirds of the way through the, that score. And I'll be putting some of it as work in progress on the concert just for fun since it's a rare situation where I'm actually able to do that. And so the the Banner Saga is getting quite a lot of adaptation for that show and for some others and also just over the over the years performing from the previous two. Uh, but a full-length show of all that score, that would be... Um, yeah, how long would it be? Do you know? Well, if we did the whole... I mean, the, I, I probably wrote five hours of music or something like that across the three come games. on come uh, on you can do it and uh <laughs> I mean, how much I, does I, it the, cost to pay an orchestra for five hours of life yeah exactly and the producer <laughs> in me also says who in the world would show up for that uh, oh i don't know <laughs> i think you'd i mean be surprised. i'm i'm not ashamed of the music but uh but still that's a tall order yeah we'll see <laughs> so what can you tell us to listen out for in uh, this track we have coming up ruin beyond the walls I would just say the um, the third one let me kind of uh, flex muscles a bit on the kind of grand mm -hmm. action set piece type vibes that um, I was um, um, restraining very deliberately on the first two. The sure. games have a kind of methodical pace. Yes. And so I was uh, intentionally keeping things... Uh, very subdued. It's not subdued, but like tense, like boiling below the surface. Yes, gotcha. Yeah. And the third one is when we finally sort of fully take the gloves off. And this is one of those moments where it's just unabashedly bombastic.
Exactly the words I had written down, Austin. I had grand, bombastic. Uh, if I was doing the checklist, I also had percussive and brassy. Uh, definitely all of those things. I think we can say superb. But probably, listener, don't start with the Banner Saga 3, I would say. Uh, start at the beginning of the series and work your way through. Enjoy enjoy the whole saga. It is a saga. It's meant to be enjoyed as it, Yeah, it, it is a very, very narrative experience where you know skipping ahead is um very ill-advised <laughs> detrimental to your overall experience possibly yes yes uh excellent now i love this next pick uh, this is such a cool one uh this is uh two people you know very well like very well um you also worked with jason graves on the order 1886 which yep. is a, a game we covered on our sister podcast a while back. But this is a song, an actual song, um, evoking kind of folksy, it's kind of, uh, yeah, almost uh, English or even a bit Celtic kind of stuff. Um, and this is from uh, a game that's, uh, yeah, it's fondly thought of among several of our team, which is uh, the little mouse, Moss, Quill <laughs> from... Uh, I've I've had a little play with Quill on on a on a PSVR headset, and uh, yeah, the charm is uh, is immeasurable. But obviously, this that we're going to hear is is an end credits song, and so I haven't unfortunately I haven't uh, got to this naturally yet. But uh, but it was a delight to listen to it today. So, what do you know about uh, how this one came together for Moss? I have very little uh, sort of inside scoop to share. I just know that I love it because Jason is so overwhelmingly known for these vicious yeah. and nasty yeah. scores like Dead Space yes. and Until Dawn and even even The Order uh, or even like the Tomb Raider reboot uh, have their moments of, of brutality. And so for him to do a score that's just as lyrical and whimsical and as Jess Curry actually said... To an audience at Royal Albert Hall, it will charm the pants off of you. Yeah, and uh, it's I, a very British I, phrase. I, yeah, and I couldn't, I couldn't <laughs> say it better. Um, and so I thought, um, I, I, to me, Jason is such a master of of the viciousness. But it, if there's ever a chance to show to uh, receptive ears in the world that he is capable of so much more. Uh, then I'm always happy to to signal boost that in my own way as, as I can. And with the added bonus that Maluka is truly one of my favorite human beings. She sings all over the three Banner Saga games. Um, oh, right. And she sang yeah. uh, in, um, uh, I did a very wonderful, charming, tiny little indie called Sunset uh, that she sings in. And, and we've done plenty of other things together, including like, uh, freestanding, just sort of singles. And, and, um, and we just, we talk fairly regularly and, and trade work in progress here and there. And uh, I just think the world of her. And so when I saw the two of them were working together, they had also worked together on Jason's score to another brutal one of uh, his, another one of his brutal games, yeah. uh, Far Cry Primal. Yeah, yeah, right. Uh, he, he, he brings out a side of her I honestly didn't know she had. <laughs> and uh, so, yeah, anyway, I just, I couldn't resist. I, I, I don't really have any under the hood kind of things to offer. It's just a really nice piece of music.
So that's from Moss Home to Me. You can only hear it uh, if you play the game by finishing the game, which uh, I think it's uh, it's like a quite a sensible length, Moss. It's like a four hour, five hour experience from start to, to end. And if you have a PSVR or an Oculus Quest or another, I think you can play it on probably other VR headsets on PC as well. Do check Moss out because uh, everyone I know who's had any time with it has been, yes, had their pants charmed off them, which may have a different meaning depending on which side of the Atlantic you're on. Uh, if, you, if you're in America, it's just your trousers and that's fine. If you're elsewhere, it gets a bit more steamy. Yeah, that's okay. We'll take it. <laughs> so it's not that kind of game. Uh, so you've already obviously <laughs> mentioned Jason and uh, and Jess and uh, and some of your other friends and favorites, but if you want to name check some other composers who we should be listening to or who inspires you and, and whose work you enjoy, but we didn't get to obviously include it all today. Uh, who are those people out there? Uh, I mean, honestly, there are innumerable and I will be guilty of omission, but oh, I can true, rattle yeah. off a few. <laughs> P- Peter McConnell is someone who scored a Grim Fandango and the yeah. Sly Cooper games and Hearthstone. And it goes on and on and on. But P- Peter is, is a, he's a dear friend. He's a, childhood hero and the fact that i get to say both of those things is still surreal yep. to me because i i i, I truly worshipped his work we still want to get him I joined on the industry. so have a word please yes <laughs> I'll, I'll poke him uh yeah <laughs> i adore him i adore his writing he's just the best and uh and so yes i love peter's work i love danny baranowski's work he's done quite yeah. a few uh just infectiously delightful scores uh, n- most notably, like the Crypt of the Necro Dancer and the Binding of Isaac, Super Meat Boy. He recently did the the Cadence of Hyrule, um, yes. the kind of Necro Dancer Zelda game, uh, yeah. which is very cool. And I know he was on Cloud Nine because he, he wrote something on Facebook like, I, "I never, if you had told me I could write for a Zelda game, yeah. I would never have believed you." This is great with uh, Nintendo reaching out in this way, like the you know the famous guy from Ubi crying because mm-hmm. he was Miyamoto was presenting his game and it had Mario in it that's just yep. yeah, it's so cool Nintendo kind of opening up in this way yep well and to that end get you know like the the Rabbids Battle Kingdom or whatever the hell I always get the name wrong but Grant Kirkhope is yep. also a composer that we I'm just sure had him know. on we just had yeah. him on a few weeks oh, back great. so yeah uh well yeah adore adore Grant and and um and uh, Jesse Harlan, mm-hmm. uh, another great composer, has scored a Mafia Three particularly recently, and and um, he's just he's just great. There's there's many there's 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 quite a few. Uh, of course, it's a of very course. talented field of Absolutely. people. Um, yeah, we'll never run out. We of obviously, guests. we obviously mentioned Gary Scheiman uh, mm-hmm. earlier. I, I will always take the chance to spotlight him and his work and. Yeah, there's there's a lot. Of course. Remember, listener, please venture over to the forum, canerince.com slash forum, or follow us on Twitter at canerince. You could even do it on Facebook if you want. But remember, request your favorite tunes from the history of the video games medium, and we'll continue to include a selection in the regular Sound of Play show when we don't have a composer guest on who gets to pick the entire running order. Uh, please subscribe to this podcast. If you don't already, leave us an Apple podcast review or rating or wherever else you get your shows from. Don't forget to listen to those other podcasts we make because there's four every week. Cana Rinse on Mondays, Playwright on Thursdays and The Sausage Factory on Fridays. Follow us on social media and support us if you can on Patreon.com. We only ask the minimum of a dollar a month, which is like 20 pence a week. Helps us keep on doing what we do. Thank you so much for your time. We'll talk a little bit more about Erica and the last track, obviously, but um, thank you so much for joining us and picking all the pieces and 
doing everything that needs to be done to join in with Sound of Play. Believe me, it is a pleasure to be here. I'm, I hope you enjoyed it. That's uh, usually oh, the absolutely. aim. That's all we can offer. Yes, <laughs> well, you have succeeded. And the promotion. Good, good. Uh, thank you also to Editor Jay, to Carl and Thomas for the extra questions, as well as our community contributors for past requests and future. Please keep those requests coming for the regular show. So we're going to close with, I think this track works as a, as a beautiful podcast closer. Um, but this perhaps is one that will surprise people that it comes from the compositional pen of Austin Wintry because this is uh, it's a bit rock and roll. It's a bit it's got some saxophone in there, bit fifties ish, bit of <laughs> bit of crackle, bit of retro production. It's another song. Tell us all about without without any spoilers for the game, <laughs> Erica. Uh, tell us all about Aria for Delphi, please. So this is. Um... It's a source cue in the game that um, is presented initially as a literal vinyl record that the character plays, but uh, then it becomes huh. a motif because it's something she associates with her childhood and her traumatic childhood is a central part of her character and like an ongoing thing in the story. It becomes the little fragment, the little tune, this body, ba-da, that little four note thing figures in constantly throughout the score whenever we're sort of on the subject of her memories. And, and I also sometimes do all manner of odd and disturbed and glitchy treatments of the, yeah. of the vocal as mm. performed by Laura and Travia. So this was one of those where, and, and there's actually even scenes where they play the song on the piano uh, and I had to I had to double as their pianist uh, for the production where I recorded the the piano and then you you see their hands but it's me playing. Oh right. Uh, and um, so um, so yeah, it's it's a piece. Um, I was starting to do the arrangement and then the the actual arrangement you hear was by a guy named Jim Fowler, a composer who's done a lot of games, including this recent PSVR game called Blood and Truth. Yes. Uh, and he was until recently he was actually part of the internal staff at the Sony Music Department and yep. he. Um, he just had a crack at, at the arrangement of it and sent it over and I was just howling with laughter. I was like, this is so perfect. And yeah. it's, it's everything and more of what I was going to do anyway. Because uh, I had written it out as a kind of piano piece where it was just purely me playing the piano and Laura singing. And he, he went and took it and took her vocal track and, and put it in this setting. And so that's how we use it. And, and he just, you know, completely nailed it and so and i think that's actually him playing saxophone although i could be wrong huh. but um in any case so that um that piece is heard quite literally in the game as source and um and then throughout um the score as a kind of motif and i just thought it would be fun to share because you're right it's not something i have done that often i do occasionally write more pop song sounding stuff but i have a particular fondness for that era like the righteous brothers kind yes. of sort of thing i just love that sound it, to me it's pop music had this real simultaneous innocence but also real lyrical beauty that i that i just adore and so it was a it was a great treat to be able to dip my toes there it was absolutely uh unchained melody was the first thing that came to mind when the intro starts up yeah i should say uh listener if you're interested in jim fowler we actually did a an interview extra thomas the aforementioned thomas quilfelt did an interview with him that's on our feed from May 2017, Sound of Play Extra. So check that one out. Uh, so to close with the song, um, just any one last thing you want to say about uh, people checking out Erica, why they should, uh, what kind of experience they're in for? Well, I we, we already covered it. It's it's a hybrid of 
film and game that while FMV games have existed in the past and while games like Heavy Rain are kind of the non-live action equivalent in many respects, there's so much going for it that I honestly can say with conviction that it is a game unlike any other they've likely played. It's a, it's a rare example of that. Um, it's not it's not wildly um, sort of psychedelically new in the way that like Death Stranding promises to be. <laughs> right, yeah. um, but it is it is new. It really mm. is it is something new. They've managed to crack the code on a genre and aesthetic that largely um, uh, sort of eluded people, and particularly during the big push to try this kind of thing in the yeah. era of Sega CD and 3DO. Um, and, um, and so I, yeah, I, I, I will say nothing more of its content, just that it was yeah. a real joy to work on it. And I hope people check it out and that they like it. And I hope they, they like the music and, and check it out. And if nothing else, I hope they've enjoyed the last hour and a half of listening to us yammer on about it. Oh, absolutely. Yes. And, uh, and sort of related, uh, we hope to have, uh, Nanita Desai soon talking about her soundtrack for sam barlow's new one so that kind of that should be oh i love that game sam invited me to come play test it and give feedback before they finished because i you know i made no i made no small uh proclamation that her story was without a doubt my game of the year that year right and uh so he he said i'm gonna be in la uh you want to you want to play um telling lies and give me some 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 notes and um it is just so good. It oh, comes out this week, uh, and uh, I, I just can't wait to go through it again. I just adored it. It's the FMV revival. So, yeah, this is from one of those. Uh, Erica, thank you so much again, Austin, and we'll leave you listeners with Aria for Delphi. 